Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. What do you do when food and energy are expensive and people find it hard to feed themselves? Well, looking back for answers, a lot of people have heard of wartime rationing in the UK, a collective effort to share what was available more or less fairly. But did you know there were also government-run restaurants that served all comers up and down the country? Bryce Evans, professor of modern world history at Liverpool Hope University, has studied these communal feeding efforts and written a book called Feeding the People in Wartime Britain. I confess that book was the first I'd heard about this, which Bryce Evans says is par for the course. There's a kind of collective amnesia about these restaurants. But why? The collective amnesia, I suppose it applies to World Wars One and Two in the sense that rationing is so successful in Britain, uh, it, relative to other countries, uh, especially in World War Two. But of course, it's introduced in the latter stages of World War One as well. And I think that's nudged aside the, the story of social eating or, if you like, state subsidized communal feeding uh, as a complement to the ration. Is, is very successful indeed. And I think it's really been uh, really obliterated from the popular memory by the ration book, by you know the, the primary ration book going to the grocer, a coupon-based Second World War rationing system, which obscures the fact that actually millions of people would have eaten in state-subsidised sort of communal dining canteens through both conflicts. Well, t- tell me about the First World War to begin with, and how, how did it come about, and how, how did it operate? Well, the problem was that, the, certainly from 1916 onwards, as the war intensifies, there was great price inflation, uh, especially in urban areas. So really, the initiative for eating collectively, communally, collaborating in terms of economies of, of uh, fuel and food, came from working-class women in big cities, um, in Glasgow, in Birmingham, London, Manchester. And it was their efforts which were then taken upon uh, by the state. The state, the Ministry of Food at the time, investigated these schemes and thought that they could uh, run them effectively and take that model. Uh, There was also a a model uh, from Croydon, which was sort of pioneered by the Labour Party, Um, as that sort of gives you an idea, there was all sorts of political anxieties about that. The state sort of was always and has always been very nervous about, especially in the year 1917, when it when it formally launches what becomes the National Kitchen. Of course, that's the year of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And the notion of, you know, masses of people all congregating in one place at one time um, is a little bit politically anxious for them. Nonetheless, they recognised the logic of it in wartime which is to combat price inflation, to feed people healthily, to um, boost morale, um, and like I say, to to achieve economies in food and fuel. So the state takes it on, really shamelessly in many ways, doesn't acknowledge uh, in any way these pioneer movements by these working class women, and takes it on and patriotically rebrands it, of course, the the national kitchen. So this will be something which... um, is very working class in origin in wartime, has very sort of, I suppose, in the popular imagination, left slash liberal overtones, but is patriotically rebranded. People and working class people weren't 
eating out much at the time. So how did they take to this idea of going out to eat? Yes, that it wasn't part of working class culture, especially in the north of England. I mean, this is really interesting from the files that these things really thrive actually uh, in the south, where it's really sort of the lower middle classes uh, who really take to them. People who would be working maybe in the city of London and go there for their lunch. There's a resistance within working class culture, particularly in some northern regions, to the notion of eating out in general. It just wasn't something within the working class culture as it is today. You know, back then eating out dining out if you like was for you know the upper middle or, or, or upper classes so you know one of the i suppose it's dangerous to be rose tinted about these things it was wartime after all but one of the specific instructions from the ministry was that these were to be cross-class ventures uh, open to all where and you read some of the accounts which are a little propagandaic so you have sort of uh kids with no shoe uh, no shoes on sitting next to women in furs uh, you know, in, in some of these London canteens. Um, they're designed to be specifically the first time that some working class people would ever eat out. So it, they, they're designed in that way to make eating communally yet inexpensively an attractive thing, something to look forward to, something that wasn't shaming or uh, demeaning or aimed solely at the deserving poor, to use a Victorian term, but which was geared towards a sort of cross-class appeal. But the, the deserving poor brings to mind... Um soup kitchens and benevolent um, aristocratic women, as you say, in furs. Um, so was, wasn't there some kind of stigma then attached to it, of, of charity, of the poor law? Yes, there was, but I think it's, it's quite interesting because, of course, there are echoes of that. And, you know, in the Victorian and then Edwardian period, yes, most of the feeding is done by faith-based organisations, the Salvation Army, soup kitchens... And it, it's very much, yes, like you say, Jeremy, a sort of, you know, ladies of the ladle, uh, you know, so the sort of lady bountiful is associated with these schemes. And there's a bit of that which carries on uh, into the war because you do have sort of elite patronage from lords and ladies and that kind of thing. But at the same time, there is quite a pronounced break within a ministry of food which is viewing itself as, you know, thoroughly modernising and views in a you know, very sort of utopian way that... that the war is sort of rationalising aspects of society which will never be the same again and that the notion of feeding should not be charity-based, that it should not be based upon this sort of Dickensian notion of the deserving poor uh, and something which is just about elite patronage. So although there are echoes of that in the First World War, they do, the Ministry of Food, a lot of the civil servants sort of running these schemes do try to make a pronounced break with that. And and in doing so, they actually conceive of, of... communal eating as the future you know there is a sort of very sort of utopian or perhaps dystopian uh, sort of tone to a lot of these ministerial communiques that you know private dining will be a thing of the past it just doesn't make sense in terms of price economies of scale um, conviviality etc to you know for every home uh, in a street of 100 houses to be uh, you know cooking their own dinner and sitting down every night that that would die out that sort of you know and there's all sorts of utopian ideas coming through as well from local government that the planning of new housing estates every housing estate would have a a sort of communal diner um so there's there's a very much a sort of utopian aspect to all this stuff which to some conservative um voices at the time is sort of alarmingly dystopian you know the notion that this is going to destroy the family and everything every virtue within society as we know it yeah, but I mean, <laughs> um, if if you look at it purely rationally and, and don't care too much about about 
families holding together, families eating together, socialization, that sort of thing. It is much more efficient. You have a few good people doing the cooking. They're using energy efficiently. Um, I believe they're sourcing food that maybe would have been much more expensive if everybody were buying it individually. And there is a lot to be said for it. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, the way how wartime always and or national emergencies, if you like, would be there, you know, uh, viruses or wars or whatever, always sort of uh, enhance this notion of, you know, collectivism in a way. And the sort of we're all in it together. And of course, it makes absolute sense um, in terms of, like you say, collective purchasing uh, price, fair price to the consumer, but also ensuring that people are actually eating uh, nutritiously as well. In, and, you know, this is a concern. Of course, there's a cynical, you know, martial priority in wartime that you need, you know, fit fighting bodies and everybody to be, you know, uh, keeping up morale. But there's also, you know, a sort of genuine progressive vein of thought behind this, that this is sort of a glimpse of the future, uh, a way to feed people better, a way to have healthy, better nourished, happier people uh, and, and social cohesion as well. Well, you, you say in the book at one point that, that I think it was actually in the Second World War that, that the food Ministry of Food was agonising over how to get people to change their actual diets to get them to eat more veg. Um, so was there a conflict between what the Ministry of Food and their advisers wanted people to eat and what the people actually wanted to eat? Yes, yes. There was always that tension. It's quite funny. One of the pioneers of the national kitchen in world war one is a guy called eustace miles who was a celebrity vegetarian uh, of his era um <laughs> ran a big sort of communal canteen uh, in london although it was quite pricey it was his private venture uh, really a sort of celebrity chef of the era mates with george bernard shaw and lots of very liberal and progressive people um and he was uh, one of the people who writes the the handbook to these in the first world war and of course you can then you know predictably see that he is derided by uh you know that there's a lot of detractors you know that view just this whole notion of especially you know the encroachment of vegetarianism as an idea as very sort of you know sandal-headed and and a sandal wearing and, and wrong-headed you know going back to the sort of prejudices against sort of edward carpenter in the, the late victorian period and that that tinge of you know although it didn't resemble this the, the notion that this is a sort of the big state telling you that everyone must eat kale and that kind of thing it was it never sort of lost that tinge and and that that sort of remained in world war 2 when it's actually much more successful part of a much slicker more uh, sort of efficient propaganda effort and much bigger in scale in world war 2 about 2500 of these things so really ubiquitous that it still though for some had that tinge of um you know, the, the state telling you everyone they should eat vegetables, especially in World War Two, when you have the context of people being bombed out of their houses. And most people after being bombed out, you know, would rather eat a pie, a sausage roll or a Kit Kat, perhaps than a very nutritious, you know, vegetable broth or, uh, you know, a plate of food with a lot of vegetables in it. So it always struggled with that image problem. So people are people are being fed by these national kitchens during the First World War. What, what happens when 1918, when the, when the peace comes? Well, there's a few reasons why national kitchens decline. I mean, the first one, I suppose, is that the private retail trade cries unfair. Um, and the private retail trades, not unreasonably, says, you know, look, we, you know, we, we're trying to survive. We're trying to run grocery and restaurant businesses. And then suddenly, you know, out of the blue, you have a whopping great 
state-sponsored restaurant in the middle of your high street, and this is just unfair. So um, that's the first reason. The second reason that they decline is because of the introduction of rationing in World War One, which is a reversion to everybody getting their food and eating it privately because it is, you know, on an individual basis or at least a family basis, the ration scheme as it is in World War II. But another very overlooked factor is, of course, there's the massive influenza pandemic, the the erroneously labelled Spanish flu of 1918. And suddenly the spectre of lots of people dining collectively is something which, you know, just, just isn't practical in terms of the spread of the virus. Although, of course, you know, the, the need uh, for people for you know, cheap, nutritious food doesn't disappear, you know, far from it post-war. But I suppose the, the expectation and the culture shifts. Right. So, so building up to World War Two, then, um, the naive, naively, I would imagine that, you know, the, the memory of, of the Ministry of Food in World War One, they, they were all primed and ready to go for World War Two. Is that how it played out? Yes, you'd imagine so, wouldn't you? But the, uh, you know, as as is sometimes the way, you know, this was only, you know, 20 years or so beforehand. But really, the the idea that in World War Two, they would adopt anything that was done in World War One was seen as terribly passe. Um, Now they just wanted to sort of, you know, rip up the old ways and, um, and, and do things anew. And I suppose there was there was a logic in that in the sense that everybody knew in World War Two, uh, in fact, um, Beveridge uh, had predicted this in a memorandum on, on public feeding written in the mid-30s that, you know, aerial destruction was going to become a thing. So they couldn't, of course, you know, copy the, the blueprint from World War One, where, you know, mass aerial destruction of civilian populations had not been a factor really in that war. Um, but at the same time, they forgot a lot of the lessons that were learned in World War One. But they also had the context of a much more expanded state bureaucracy uh, like I say, a much more slick uh, Ministry of Food operation in general. You know, the, the Ministry of Food works very well in World War II in terms of its propaganda, the cartoons, the information services that it's churning out, the the, the, the talkies before the cinema, the whole network of rationing which is instituted early and, I would argue, very successfully. So there's a much more extended, expanded bureaucracy in World War II, um, and it does take off in a much, much bigger way. So how do you get from the national kitchens of First World War to the British restaurants? I mean, there's, there's two different kinds of changes there. Well, during the Second World War, the Ministry of Food wants to revive these schemes, but it wants to call them communal feeding centres. Wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill um, although I wouldn't want to sort of lean into to what is a very, you know, Churchillian hagiography, if you like, but he insists that they're called British restaurants because he quite quite rightly, I think, says that, uh, you know, nobody really, and I'm paraphrasing here, nobody looks forward to going to eat in a communal feeding centre. It sounds terribly Soviet, perhaps Dickensian. It's got the whiff of the workhouse to it, perhaps, whereas people look forward to the pleasure of going out to dine in a restaurant certainly Churchill did of course as a you know, sort of bon vivant himself um, and an epicure and all the rest so he was right on, on that account um, he did though cause uh, Minister of Food Lord Walton great embarrassment at the launch of Walton Pie which is one of the staples that were served in, in these um, in these venues and uh, they were having a sort of press shoot in the Savoy and Churchill sends back his Walton Pie um, and gets I think some some chops instead but Despite that, he was right in terms of the, the, the name, you know, the people wanting to go to a British restaurant, I suppose. And, and it did 
again to come back to to the point you made before for working class people this was more of an occasion that that was something to look forward to so it had a crucial morale uh, compliment as well how did women feel about this i mean i many of them were presumably in the workforce but many were still as it were housewives at home how did they feel about having this role of being the the food provider taken away from them to some extent well there there are really mixed um accounts on this i mean you read some of the i think mass observation which is the project undertaken by the british government where they have voluntary diarists about every aspect of british life uh, as a means of sort of social surveillance um a lot of those diarists are female uh a lot of their accounts are quite positive but they they are sometimes contradictory because it is a diary of everyday life so you get some of these female diarists complaining that you know they suffered uh, terrible stomach cramps and wind after eating the mock goose in in a british restaurant and then others saying you know it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and it saves me having to cook and this kind of thing um you do get some evidence uh that some women regarded them as too expensive and you know why would i use them i just cook via the ration at home um but then for other women that it was a very nice respite from actually having to sort of cook every day right right um one of the things i found absolutely surprising in your book um is you say that at one point there were roughly twice as many british restaurants as there currently are mcdonald's and that's a lot of british restaurants it is yeah when you think how ubiquitous the big yellow m of mcdonald's is i mean you can't really go anywhere you know in the country without seeing one of those and at their peak yeah in 1943 there were twice as many which shows the extent to which they really were on every high street and even in you know quite small towns and sometimes villages um with quite uh, distinctive branding as well you know so again you know if you are a sort of a small retailer you can probably see why some of them you know got got the hump in world war 2 as well because this sort of again this this sort of you know uh, monolithic state entity uh, being seen everywhere um of course the analogy with mcdonald's you know doesn't quite work in terms of two very different entities but in some ways we look at mcdonald's today as a sort of you know why why do sort of young people like mcdonald's so much well it's a you know it's cheap food not very good food but it's cheap food it's a, it's a sort of clean and welcoming and ostensibly safe and warm social space and we've got to remember that a lot of these british restaurants were like that as well they were sort of you know they were communal venues they were places for people to come together not really in the same way as the pub they would have been drive venues but they also had that function of a sort of you know the conviviality and community and sort of social cohesion aspect mm. the other the other great surprise to me was that um margaret thatcher her dad um the famous dad who was a grocer alf roberts he he ran a british restaurant and was pretty much in favor of them um that didn't really rub off on on his daughter did it <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's a funny one it, he was based in grantham uh margaret thatcher's uh, father as you say a grocer but also a, a town councillor and very much a sort of you know respectable man of local politics and he was an enthusiastic champion of these i suppose it shows you the, the success of the um uh, pr operation around thatcher you know in the 80s the the grocer's daughter as you know implying paragon of 
privatized individualism, etc. But if you really look at Roberts, he was much more a um, you know a man of uh, who, who sort of emphasized civic virtue. And if you look at the sort of council meetings and minutes in Grantham, he consistently voted for more money and the expansion of the British restaurant, which again you know jars very much against our um, opinion of him via the sort of uh, Thatcherite PR machine as as the sort of hard headed privatized individualists so it just goes to show that really they they were popular again i don't want to sound like an evangelist for these things they did have their detractors they did appeal to that um how can i put it sense of one nation conservatism um as well as uh being seen as some people as sort of symbolic of you know godless uh, soviet you know communism uh, it's kind of common knowledge that rationing was actually pretty good for general public health in in Britain. Is there any way to say that um, British restaurants had any impact on health and nutrition? Well, certainly the Ministry of Foods scientists and nutritionists like to think so. Um, Guys, you know, really pioneering guys, famous guys uh, like Jack Drummond, who who, who would go on to, to a successful career, uh, you know, really, Britain's really famous nutritionist of the mid-century. Uh, he was very much uh, in favour of them. He said that there was data to show that, you know, people were eating more healthily, especially in terms of their intake of veg. Um, did it, in, how did it impact? I suppose it's hard to extrapolate that from the, as you say, largely positive aspects of the ration all around. It rema- it's important to say it remained a complement to the ration. The ration was the primary means of feeding people. But like I say, hard to extrapolate the the impact of the, the the British restaurant away from the general Russian diet but but certainly its enthusiasts within the Ministry of Food its its nutritionists thought that it really was having a very positive impact um stepping away from the the history if you like I mean we you, you've you've pointed out that um there was price inflation fuel was expensive people were dying in the war um it does it does sound a little bit like the start of of lockdown and what we're even seeing now with with price and fuel inflation so is there a is there a role for for something like the british restaurants again today well i i think it's very important as a historian you're you're um wrapped around the knuckles if you're too anachronistic or present centered but yeah you're quite right i mean i writing the book in that context which you mention you can't ignore some of the parallels you know the return albeit imperfectly that we had during the pandemic of a form of state-supported eating out uh emergency conditions concerns over people being properly fed consume concerns today uh post-pandemic of uh, price inflation of food so i think the lessons are there i i personally think you can't help but contrast them to the primary means today of feeding the poorest people which is through the food bank which uh, i don't want to, to knock the noble volunteerism of that um, network but i think as a form of course in very different contexts a form of feeding people en masse i really think for all their problems uh national kitchens and british restaurants really were quite successful at feeding a lot of people cheaply and nutritiously and in doing so combating inflation and achieving social cohesion. I, I really think that some of the conditions do, do make a case for that today. 
Bryce Evans, and his book, Feeding People in Wartime Britain, contains lots more fascinating information about how governments worked to ensure that people had enough to eat. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com, along with pointers to some articles, including one at the start of the COVID lockdown, in which Evans made a good case for using school kitchens to cook meals that would be delivered to people at home, just like Deliveroo or Uber Eats. There are, of course, experimental communal kitchens and restaurants scattered around the UK today, many of them doing much-needed work. In a way, things have come full circle to the working-class women whose efforts inspired the Ministry of Food in the First World War. I wonder whether we're now going to see communal kitchens spread as they did when they got real government backing. That's all for now. As ever, my thanks to supporters of the show who help to keep the lights on and to make transcripts available. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. So from me, Jeremy Chaffers, and Eat This Podcast... Goodbye, and thanks for listening.